Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizon, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Fizon? Not much. How are you? Good. So at first, I thought we'd talk about our experience at MPEX, and we will. But I also saw a pretty important article published recently titled The Most Expensive Lesson of My Life, Details of a Simport Hack, which came through on Medium. And I thought that would be worth talking about. And we'll link to the article in the show notes and all that. But the brunt of the article is that Sean Kuntz, who works at BitGo, and just from his profile, it seems like he works in their engineering department. And BitGo is a very large digital asset custodian. So he's the author of this article. And I thought we could talk through this because I encourage everyone to read it because it highlights an example of a simport attack, which is a type of attack that intends to impersonate someone else using their phone, in particular their phone number with a different SIM. So we've heard about this kind of attack before in crypto, and uh, Sean lost $100,000 from his Coinbase account through this attack. So this obviously sucks, and I think it took him a lot of courage to actually put his experience out there given the fact he works for a large custodian, given the fact he's in engineering and all that. So kudos to him to actually put it out there for others to learn from. So I thought we could kind of walk through this article. And there's a really nice section in there called Timeline of Events. And uh, this is what he says about this. With a better grasp of how such an attack is carried out and the scope of what's at stake, let's dive into the timeline of the attack. And then he goes into kind of four different areas of what happened over the course of like a day, basically, day and a half or so. And he broke the timeline out into a few sections. So what he experienced, things from his point of view, what the attacker was actually doing, those were the tactics that the hacker used to get into his Coinbase account. His perceived threat level and the threat level he should have had. And it was a concerning attack because Coinbase obviously is probably a, I don't know, what do you think, Fizz, on there? Probably like one of the biggest on-ramps for a lot of people using fiat to get into crypto in the U.S. at least, right? Yeah, absolutely. They're huge. Yeah. So let's go through the attack. So it starts at Tuesday at 10 p.m. And I'll just, when I read this off, I'll just explain like what I'm saying, like whether or not it's the attacker, his perception and all that. So this is the attacker. At 10 p.m., attacker ports his SIM card to a device they control. This is his perception. I'm in bed and looking at my calendar for the next day when I notice that my phone doesn't have any cellular service. This has never happened to me before, but I chalk it up as a blip in coverage. And his threat level is green, meaning he's not concerned. Tuesday at 10.05, literally five minutes later, attacker resets my Google account password. My 2FA verification code is sent to their device, which is used to change my password. This is his perception. Soon after losing cellular service, I received prompts on my device to log into my Google account. This seems odd, but I assume it's associated to my loss in service. I thought the two issues were coupled. 
attempt to enter my password but cannot successfully do so because it has been changed by the attacker. It's late. I decide to go to bed and deal with it in the morning. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. Threat level here, he has a little note. Being unable to log into my Google account with a known password should have given me serious pause for concern. So his actual threat level was green, but his the threat level he should have had, I think, should have been a lot higher. And I think he points to that. Tuesday at 10.50, this is presumably as he's asleep, but uh, the attacker initiates, it's 45 minutes after what we were just talking about, attacker initiates the password recovery flow on my Coinbase account. And again, he's saying he's asleep. He had no idea this happened. Ten forty-five minutes is pretty important because if he had been more suspicious, that is enough time to maybe take some action. Yeah, against your other accounts that you can still get into. Like maybe you can't get into Google, but you have your Coinbase account or bank accounts or your most critical accounts. You can probably get in there right. and change the uh, the email they're associated with. Yeah, I mean your email is probably associated with tons of accounts. So a minute later, Tuesday at 10.51, Coinbase sends a password reset email to my email address. That They delay the password reset link for 24 hours. The attacker, now with complete control of my email address and SIM card, intercepts the email, saves the password reset link, and deletes the message. When I finally regain access to my email account the next morning, I'm completely unaware this has happened. So, you know, that was pretty, like, devious on part of the attacker. They know that the link lasts for a day. They assume this person, you know, is asleep. They probably picked at this time, you know, that's kind of late, assuming the person might be asleep. And Wednesday at 11 a.m., so this is almost 12 hours later. This is from the attacker viewpoint. While controlling my email account, the attacker deletes any and all password reset security incident emails that were sent. This is from his perspective. The next morning, I head to my local mobile carrier to figure out what's going on with my cellular service. The service associate states that something is wrong with my SIM card and issues me a new one. I'm a little suspicious, but I recently dropped and cracked my phone, so I sure something happened to the phone or SIM card during that drop. And threat level here is red, and he says, I should have performed a more thorough investigation with the service associate. Ten minutes later, nothing on the attacker side, but he says, with my SIM card tied back to my mobile device, I'm able to use mobile two-factor authentication to reset the password on my primary email account. I'm simply happy to have cellular service and email account restored. I have a busy day ahead of me so I can get back to work. His perceived threat level is that alarm bell should have been blazing that I needed to reset my email account in the first place. I should have gone into my account security settings to see if any unauthorized incidents had occurred. And I guess there he means like, is there a settings tab or something you can go to in a Gmail, for example, you can see like where people have logged in from or? That's a good question. I know that because I'm often in Canada, whenever I move and I log in again, I do get an email that, hey, you logged in from like Oakville, Ontario. Uh, So I'm assuming there is probably somewhere you can actually look at your list of logins, but they definitely do track that and shoot out emails based on IP. Wednesday at 10 p.m., this is like at the end of the day, attacker ports my SIM again to another device they control. So he says, about the same time as the previous night, I noticed similar drop in cellular service. Annoyed, I believe I received a malfunctioning SIM card. Similar pop-ups about being logged out of my email account begin to appear. I chalk it up to the same issue as the night prior and decide to deal with it in the morning. So in his perception is that this is what he should have been doing. Uh, this is more than co- coincidence. I should have been on the phone with customer support, email provider, and financial institutions. Wednesday, a minute later, attacker resets my email account password yet again. The attacker then completes the Coinbase password reset flow using the link provided earlier. I'm a sound asleep. 
Wednesday, 10, 10, 10 minutes later, attacker drains my Coinbase wallet. Attacker also makes multiple buy orders using my account and sweeps those funds. And he's also asleep. Thursday, 9 a.m., I head back to my local mobile carrier. The service representative has issues unlocking my mobile account. My PIN no longer works. He then asks if I was in Nevada yesterday, to which I respond no. His eyes light up, beginning to think it's fraud. I attempt to access my Coinbase account on my mobile device. My session is no longer valid. I begin to think the worst while holding out hope for the best. A couple hours later, he says Coinbase customer support confirms there was a user able to gain access to my account the night prior and has swept all the funds to an on-chain address outside of Coinbase. So yeah, that was a series of events of like, you know, 10 kind of unique events. Again, props to him for actually like disclosing this. It's, it's uh uh, it's always pretty tough to talk about this kind of stuff. So I don't know, what's your take on this, Faison? Yeah, so it's easy to, uh, you know, in hindsight, just quarterback this and say that he should have done this, he should have done that. I think the first set of mistakes is is understandable. I think realistically, a lot of people might ignore a, their phone not working for a bit or the first security email. But once he had to go in and reset his passwords and then he slept through the second night of the uh, repeat issue... I think you know that's where things really went south because yep. by by the looks of it, the Coinbase email was designed to prevent the first round of attacks, and essentially getting hacked twice is what allowed his funds to be drained. Right. I mean, the main takeaway here is uh, do not use your phone number as your like two-factor source because if you have like Google Authenticator or some actual hardware-based two-factor, people can't like port that. Yep. without f- physically having access to your phone. But your phone number is not tied at all with physical access to your phone. And Frank, not even your SIM. You know, I have, my phone doesn't even have a SIM anymore. Now there's like eSIMs. And the way I got my phone working was I just like called my phone company, said I have a new phone, here's the thing. And can you, and they just ported the SIM over. So it's a very, very susceptible, or it's a way that's very susceptible to like social engineering because you can just call your phone company and get stuff swapped over. So you, you cannot use your phone number as a second factor. You have to use uh, either an app or a hardware-based second factor. Yep. And just because I know that this helped me understand what a SIM port attack was when I first heard about it, he has a little description here. This, I'll just read from it. So a SIM port attack is a malicious port performed by an unauthorized source the attacker. They port your SIM card to a phone they control. The attacker then initiates the password reset flow on your email account, and then the verification code is sent from your email provider to your phone number. Kind of, you know, what we talk through in the uh, in the timeline of events. Yeah, and I agree with you. Like, I think two factor when it first showed up. I don't know necessarily that the phone idea made sense, but it does make sense that there is some other kind of factor. The whole point of the name of the thing is that there's some other mechanism that you need to like reset passwords get account information back and so on. But now, as you mentioned, we got we have things like Google Authenticator and Authy. And I was surprised that Coinbase still supports kind of phone-based two-factor auth. Because I remember I had an Authy associated with them. They told me that, and this was a couple, this was a couple of years back, they had told me like, you shouldn't use Authy anymore because it's no longer secure. I don't remember what the issue was. It was a couple of years ago, but specifically they said, don't use Authy, use Google Authenticator. So I thought maybe they're ahead of their times with respect to that. But maybe yeah. there's like older accounts that are still on two factor phone auth. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think people like having your phone number be your second factor is better than not having two factor because 
someone still has to do a sim port, but it's just not it's not enough. The second factor is that actually having that physical device, and that's really the, like the only thing that's good enough. Right. And of course, there's other kinds of things. And, and okay, so in the article, he has a section called Lessons Learned and Recommendations, and there's some you know great advice in here. The first one, and we've talked about this a bunch, is like, just use a hardware wallet to secure your crypto. The fact that when you leave your crypto on an exchange, it's susceptible to all kinds of stuff, like a SIM port attack, for example, the exchange goes down, exchange shuts down for a little bit, exchange is hacked. Literally, there's like a whole one, a whole number of reasons like you don't necessarily want to leave your crypto on an exchange. If you're trading it, that's what you have to do. Uh, big funds have like allocations at multiple exchanges to deal with this reason. They, they like assign probabilities of exchange failure to some of their trades and things like that. But if you're just a casual like crypto holder or if you're a hodler, there's really no reason to, I mean, especially if you're a hodler, there's no reason to leave it on the exchange. Yeah, there's some kind of convenience benefit to it because it's, I guess, kind of a pain in the ass to like move your assets over to this hardware wallet and then secure that on your own and all that. But it does work. You know, offline storage, multi-sig wallets are probably just a hardware wallet and some kind of offline storage is enough to not have to deal with this particular issue. Yeah. The second point, SMS-based 2FA is not enough. I think, you know, we talked about that. He mentions a YubiKey in here. Do you know what, what that is? Yeah, it's like a physical device. So it's, again, a hardware-based two-factor authentication. It's like USB-based. So you just like plug it into your machine and like you click a button and that essentially acts as the the second factor instead of you putting in like a six-digit number from Authenticator. But fundamentally, the, the idea is the same. You're generating a code that is seeded from the actual piece of hardware. So when you're using your like a Google Authenticator, it is still tied to your actual hardware. And the same thing with a YubiKey. The argument I think that you could make for something like a YubiKey is if like your phone is something that you carry with you at all times. And the reality is like people get phones stolen and they lose their phones just because it's something that's with you all the time and you're out and about. Whereas something, if you're using a totally different 2FA device, you can increase security by, you know, if, like if I have a YubiKey and I leave it at home and I'm only using it for like, it's only a second factor for like my crypto accounts. And then I use my phone for like all my other regular stuff. You're separating the two and you're just exposing that key to the outside world a lot less. Gotcha. And the actual, like does Coinbase have to support YubiKey? I'm not totally clear how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd have to have a, a, a something supported, but it's pretty uh, widely supported. And then Google has launched their own, like the Titan security keys and so we'll probably see more widespread support as a result. But yeah, there's a f- there's a few different companies that do security keys to uh, one or two big standards. Yep. So he uh, the third point he brings up is reduce your online footprint, and we could probably do like we could like launch a new podcast on this. Yeah. This is like a bit of social commentary, but basically he's saying reduce the use to needlessly share personal identifiable information like birth date, location, pictures with geolocation data embedded in them, things like that. Yeah, I think this one is like if you're like a cryptocurrency like professional, then this is reasonable. But I think for just your average person that holds some cryptocurrency, you're expecting major changes in behavior. You know, I think this is fine, like opsec advice for professionals. But like, I'm not going to tell my dad to just completely use the internet differently. I think just hardware keys is probably the way to go. Right. Google Voice 2FA. I've never used this. Have you? 
Uh, I haven't. Okay. I didn't even know it was a thing. Create a secondary email address. Instead of binding everything to a single email address, create a secondary address for your critical online identities. Do not use this email address for anything else and keep it private. Okay. That's not a bad suggestion. It's not a bad idea. I did have one of my Gmails hacked once. Like I had a Russian login and I got the email security email from it and I took action immediately. Yep. And luckily it was one of my emails that isn't associated with any anything important. Yep. And then going back to the Google Voice one, I think the point there is that uh, because Google Voice is not SIM based, it's not vulnerable to a SIM port attack. So like someone can't support your number. Okay, I see. Got it. Yeah, because there are some sites that support two-factor, but they don't support like a YubiKey or Google Authenticator. They only support uh, phone numbers where they text you a security code. Yep. So if you have to use SMS-based 2FA, you can associate a number that can't be ported. Um, so I think that's the idea there. Okay, gotcha. Um, I think I misread that as some kind of voice-based 2FA. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought too, because my bank actually does that. Oh, okay. Yeah, so when I call in, they're very, very, very proactive with like disabling my debit card. Um, <laughs> like I live in Manhattan, and like if I use it in Queens, they'll like disable it. <laughs> and they don't have an online base. Like, hey, I'm traveling or whatever, so I you know go to Canada a lot too. So it used to get disabled like every other month. So rather than like being put on hold and having to talk to a bunch of people and answer the same security questions over and over. Uh, which in of itself is a you know a vector for a social engineering attack. They actually just have me answer my security que- like a robot asks me and I answer my security questions and it uses my voice profile to like unlock my account. Which I'm sure there's attack as we get better with like reproducing people's voices using ML. That's not going to be that safe anymore. But it, right. it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Offline password manager. This is. Uh, use a password manager for your passwords. Even better, use an offline password manager like Password Store. I don't think this would have helped him, though, in this particular case, right? Because the the attacker had reset their password, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know that this would... I think this would be helpful in conjunction with something like a hardware key, mm-hmm. where you, you, know, you have your hardware... Uh, or your hardware wallet, and then any of your seed phrase or whatnot, you have com- stored completely offline. And so there's no connection with, like you don't need to do anything um, online yep. to interact with those things. So I, I think just using a password manager is a good idea. idea. Yep. For the same reason as having secondary email addresses too, then you're more likely to have different passwords for everything. Right. And on the secondary email address front, someone had actually commented on the article, uh, Tim Kreshmer. He said, I would like to add a little bit on this, and I'm going to paraphrase here. Uh, Best practice is not just another email, but also make your own domain and forward to it. So you could buy tradingmonster2019.co, and then you set up an email forwarding catch-all to your newly created Google Mail account, tradingmonster at googlemail.com, which is secured by 2FA. So this was kind of interesting. That He's saying basically if your email gets leaked, it's a single endpoint. It's only valid for the single exchange. No one knows how to access emails that particular email address, and he has stuff like Hello Coinbase at Trading Monster 2019, Kraken BTC at Trading Monster 2019.co. This kind of seems like a pain to like have a separate email for every exchange, but I thought this it was just kind of interesting, nonetheless. Yeah, I think this falls back into that realm of like if you're a professional, it's a probably a reasonable uh, step to take because you should be doing everything possible. But again, like this is not necessarily practical for like the non-technical layperson. Right. Cool. So 
everyone should read this. There were actually some pretty strong reactions online as well. So Fluffy Pony, we'll link to this uh, his this conversation on Twitter that Ricardo Spagni started of Monero. So he said, if the engineering leadership, engineering leadership in quotes, at BitGo can get owned by a simple SIM swap attack that destroys all confidence in their offering, I'd suggest nobody ever use BitGo again. And then Mike Belshi, who's actually the, uh, the founder CEO of BitGo, he said, it shows that Coinbase is more interested in signing up 100K users a day than keeping their users secure. SMS, 2FA is easy to set up, but how many users are they exposing each day to account takeovers? BitGo banned it years ago because it isn't secure. That's pretty funny that BitGo themselves banned uh, SMS 2FA, yet that was the like the way the, uh, Sean was attacked. Yeah. And then some people are you know more, I guess, sympathetic and empathetic. It's just a mix. Like You can see both sides here, right? Yeah. All right. So to more happy topics. So this past weekend, we attended MPEX, which stands for, I think, Empire Elixir, a uh, one-day conference dedicated to the Elixir programming language here in New York. They hosted at Subculture, which is a swanky kind of theater venue here in the city. Yeah, uh, it's like an underground jazz club, like yeah. physically underground. Yeah. I was curious what the what people had said about it. The New York Times has called it, if the aristocratic salons of the late 18th and early 19th century have any equivalent today, it might be a place like subculture, if that gives you any kind of sense on what the place might be like. But MPEX itself has always been a great conference to go to because of the talks. I think this is the fourth MPEX. Yeah, uh, it's the fourth one. I've I've been every year, actually. The first one, I lived in Cambridge, then Quincy, then Brooklyn, now Manhattan. So I keep moving closer. So I think next year's I'll <laughs> actually be living out of that basement. Right. <laughs> I guess first off, you know, why don't we just talk real quick about, we've talked on a few on prior podcasts, but I think we should just always remind people about this awesome programming language known as Elixir. Yeah, why, why do we like Elixir so much? We like Elixir because it gives us a ton of leverage. And by leverage, what I mean is that a small team can do a lot of stuff, both in terms of like quantity, like the amount of stuff you can build and prototype, and also the uh, quality or like degree of difficulty. So if you want to build stuff that leverages a lot of concurrency, if you want to build stuff that needs to be somewhat distributed, if you want to build stuff that has crazy amounts of uh, IO, you can do a lot with small amount of resources at, at a high level in terms of just quality and, and features. So it's a super high leverage language and it's a, a nice community as well. Yep. And Phoenix is kind of the main web framework of Elixir. And one reason we like that too is a lot of the conventions that we have for Phoenix have made it very nice to work with. So I think a lot of the Phoenix team, actually maybe not a lot, but a decent amount of the Phoenix team had come from Railsland. Am I is that correct? Yeah. So just a lot. There are a lot of people uh, in Elixir from uh, Rubyland. Jose Valim, who wrote Elixir, was and uh, Platforma Tech were big time Rails and uh, Ruby contributors. But you do see people from from all over because the roots of the language are in uh, Erlang and distributed systems. So it's it's sort of a, a mix of crowds. So like we were saying, MPEX has been a really great conference. This year was no exception and thought we could just do kind of a recap episode uh, covering the talks. 
We'll, again, we'll link all this stuff to the show notes. The first, okay, so it wasn't officially a talk, but it was one of the sponsors of the conference. And I was very surprised. It was so Pex, PepsiCo, they have a division called uh, PepsiCo e-commerce. e-commerce, right? I'm not entirely sure what they do exactly, but kind of the things that we heard that they do are marketing automation, managing expectations around e-commerce products, and then kind of end-to-end supply chain optimization. All that stuff makes sense that they would do these things. And they're hiring for Elixir roles. I mean, multiple Elixir roles. So that was just kind of interesting. What was your what was your take on that? Yeah, when I saw Pepsi e-commerce first, I thought like a lot of these very big companies do have like a labs division, you know, where they're just trying yep. different projects and they get to they get to choose their stack, so they get to choose fun stuff like Elixir. But they made it very clear that they're not a labs division. They they really are primarily focused on it, like helping sell like your standard your traditional Pepsi products. Yep. So I thought that was interesting because that then I was like, well, what does that? How does Elixir fit in? But when you look at things like supply chain, then it maybe makes more sense because there's all these different companies. You know, they had Amazon and Instacart and Walmart as examples that are selling their product. And I'm sure that, you know, there's the surface sites that we use, but there's a ton of stuff going on on the supply chain management side yep. that can use, that needs a lot of work. Yep. But they're hiring for everything by yeah. the looks of it. Front end, full stack, data engineering, back end, management. I mean, basically everyone that you would have yeah. at a technology company. So the first talk, the keynote was by Dave Thomas, and he gave a talk on OTP. And he basically went through, I think last year, you went, you were there last year, I, I wasn't. Yeah. What was the talk he gave last year? It was pretty controversial. Yeah. So, so last year he gave the closing keynote and he basically, I didn't take it that negatively, but I can see how people did. He basically was like, you guys are doing everything wrong. Here's how you should be doing things. And it just sort of went through step by step and ripped apart a lot of the sort of uh, conventions that people have taken for granted. And I thought it was actually a good talk because there's a lot of great things about Elixir, but there is stuff that is not optimal or or tedious and you you don't spend that much time thinking about it. And he really surfaced all the things that people sort of just put up with that they, in his mind, shouldn't have to. Yep. Yeah. And then this time they said, you know, we're going to have him speak first instead of at the end. So... I guess, to have the, these topics in people's minds uh, throughout the day. So, yeah, uh, he opened it up with a eulogy for Joe Armstrong, the creator of Erlang, who just recently uh, passed away. And then he basically, his his thesis around OTP was that it was designed for telecommunications hardware, So it's designed to run on a limited number of nodes that are physically connected on a high-speed backplane. So when you're looking at things like supervision and configuration and then like the how you're building your distributed systems and federation, those things are not being done correctly because they should be much more like much more dynamic and suited to how applications are, are built nowadays. Yep. So to touch on a couple of those topics, one was supervision and lifecycle management. So he doesn't believe that all that should live in the application code. It should be extracted out of the application code. An observer should be replaced with something nicer so you can actually see what's going on. And supervision should not just exist at the application level, but it should actually exist for nodes and clusters because nodes and clusters go 
question on this. So when he says move it out of the application code, so where would it sit? That's a good question. So I took it to understand that like right now you're, Behavior of your supervisor is pretty tightly coupled in the sense that, like, you're looking up things by process, you're looking up setting your restart rules and all of that, like, right in your application. So, without, I, you know, I don't have a good grasp on what the code of it should look like, but I took it to understand that the you'd almost just move out anything that's related to how and when things should be restarted and maybe just handle things like you know, like the state you initialize things with or restart things with. Yep. And then you'd have an entirely separate application that's running that holds the configuration of the application node and cluster level that monitors what's going on. So it's almost like you have a separate application that knows how these other applications you're running should be behaving. And he was talking, that's what he was saying about runtime config, right? Yeah, so obviously the configuration in Erlang, because again, it was this was designed to originally to run on like embedded systems, there's not great conventions for changing runtime config. Example he gave is a lot of times what people do is you just create like a module that you start within your application that just holds the config and you're, you know it's like a gen server basically. But again, he wanted configuration to be hierarchical, so you have it at the application, the node, the cluster level, and then there should be a config changed event that uh, can you know that can fire. Yep. And then you would have a, a separate configuration server that manages all of your configuration that you know your application would go uh, fetch its configuration from or receive the config change event from. And so I think his idea is just to, to take this idea of the supervision tree and bring it out to the both the node and the cluster level yep. and move everything that's related to supervision and configuration into a separate application and then just have your application code be more of like what your traditional app would be. Yep. You know, I thought it was kind of funny because he made this point in the keynote. You know, last week we were talking about you know, the CrowdStrike IPO and kind of how they view the future of multiple endpoints, like, you know, desktops, laptop, phone, IoT devices and things like that. And he was kind of making the point during the keynote that he saw a similar kind of future where he didn't want Elixir to just serve as web code, but also to have Beam serve as kind of like this that layer for this multiple types of endpoint future. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that, that goes into the, the last point about uh, federation where, uh, you know, we said sharing configuration at runtime, but part of that was also like better discovery and sync. Yep. It's like right now when we set up our cluster, we essentially you know have vm.args, we specify everything, how the cluster looks. But if you had a much larger system with thousands of nodes and potentially devices coming on and offline, you want that handled much better by your cluster. And then uh, along those lines, he also wanted to uh, talk about load management. So we used a lot of calls. He wanted to move things over to using more cast and just build your systems to be asynchronous that way. He claimed there's this like religion of back pressure, like everyone's always trying to build back pressure into their streaming-based systems. He said back pressure is optional and uh, streams should be uh, push-based and not pull-based. So what is, what is back pressure there? So back pressure being, uh, so let's say I have a system that is reading events and based on the events it reads, it does some amount of computation and then produces a result and then forwards that result to, to another system. So the idea of back pressure would be, let's say the system can only actually compute like 100 events per minute because of like whatever limitation we have. Mm-hmm. 
So back pressure would be some mechanism so that the system is never fed so many events that it gets overwhelmed. So one method of back pressure is the the system requesting rather than being pushed new data, it requests data when it has uh, time to handle it. So a way of implementing back pressure would be rather than having a system that uh, processes and emits events, and then a system that's like feeding data into that thing, uh, you might have a queue. So you have one system that loads into the queue, and then the other reads off the queue, and then that queue acts as a back pressure mechanism. So the system that's working off the queue doesn't get overwhelmed or blow up. Yep. So th- there's various ways of implementing back pressure, but th- the idea is just there should be some way of having uh, feedback between two, like a system that's streaming events into another one so that it doesn't overwhelm it. Yep. And he basically said, you don't need to do that. As much as it's like being done. Yep. And they had this kind of like different format where, you know, he gave the keynote and then I think Brian Mitchell was, uh, came back with like a few different like counterpoints. What was your take on that? Yeah, it was like a keynote slash uh, town hall hybrid. So Dave said his piece and then they sort of put some chairs out. And then Brian Mitchell gave his rebuttals to items we discussed, you know, basically saying that for a number of reasons, the things that we're doing now work pretty well and, and Erlang's been doing it for 30 years and it's battle tested and we don't need to change as much as, you know, Dave is saying we do. And then uh, they brought some people in from the audience to sit in the chairs as well and, and give the, their point of view. So they tried to turn it into a town hall. I thought it was an interesting uh, experiment. The main thing I'd say is to really get a good back and forth going, you might need like a few more minutes because uh, I think everyone sort of spoke once, and then that was uh, we were running up on time. Yep. And then the next talk was uh, Zach Kaiser uh, called "Demystifying Purely Functional Data Structures in Elixir." Yeah. So this one was interesting. He, you know, didn't go into the code, but more a conceptual implementation of a how functional data structures work. So he talked about immutability. He talked about persistence. He also uh, really demonstrated in detail this idea of data sharing. So in functional languages, you don't mutate, but rather copy structures when you're making a new one. And obviously, if you just copy everything all the time, you're going to have a lot of memory usage. Yep. So there was this idea of uh, two different data structures that have some common sections actually sharing references to that same same data. And this is the one where he was going through that like red-black tree example, right? Yeah, exactly. So yep. use the red black tree, and then if you want to make a new one, what would the new one look like in terms of uh, sharing parts of the old one? And then he also talked about strict versus lazy evaluation, call by name versus call by need, and then went into a whole uh, section about how to implement memoization in Elixir. Because, uh, again, if, when you have uh, lazy evaluation... You can, you know, basically to avoid the scenario where you keep calling the same expensive function over and over again, MMIization is a good technique to avoid that. So he gave some examples of uh, implementing that. And then he introduced a new new terminology to me. I hadn't heard this term before, amortized analysis. Yep. I don't know if that was uh, new to you as well. Yeah, it was. I hadn't heard it in terms of like computer science before, no. Yeah. So it's just interesting. So it's a, just another way to look at algorithmic complexity where just the idea that like worst case per operation can be too pessimistic. So it's just another way to look at it to give you a more, I guess, average case result. And he recommended a book called Amortized Analysis by Chris Okasaki. Okay. Which you should probably take a look at one day. 
Yeah. And then uh, after him, we had uh, Vebov Sagar. I think he goes by V, Veeb. And uh, he basically talked about uh, DevOps. And I really liked his talk because, you know, spent a lot of time dealing with Docker and distillery yeah. and EXRM and eDeliver. And uh, he basically talked about uh, Nix and Nix OS, which is what he uses as his build and package manager. Mm-hmm. And he brought up these, uh, you know, five points that a good DevOps system should be automatic, repeatable, idempotent, reversible, and atomic. Yep. And so automatic is pretty straightforward. It should be one command. Repeatable, pretty straightforward. Uh, the idempotent one was interesting because especially when dealing with package managers and build systems, if you sort of go halfway through and repeat the command, you can often run into, if you don't have a, if you just have a bash script that isn't well thought out, you can really end up in situations where you're making a mess. So the idea here was that you should be able to run the same command over and over from wherever you are and always end up in the same state. And then uh, reversible, obviously need the ability to do rollbacks. Yep. And then uh, atomic. So I like this. A lot of people were like, well, why would you use this over containerization? I think there's situations where you're not deploying using something like Docker. You're still you're just deploying your Elixir releases, mm-hmm. but you still want a lot of the benefits that maybe building in a container would have given you. Yep. And so this looked like a pretty good uh, good tool set to use. Do you think the deploy speed is a factor here as well? Like deploying with Nix, for example, versus like a Docker build? I don't think so. I, I didn't get any reason to believe that that would be anything beyond just how you set up your hardware. Okay. And then uh, after him, we had uh, from the core team, uh, Eric Meadows Johnson, and he was talking about uh, Mint, which was a processless HTTP client. So just to give that some context, the, uh, you know, with Elixir and Erlang specifically, there's this whole idea of you can, because processes are so cheap, you can just spin up a process for everything. Most of the HTTP clients do that where they, every request gets its own process. And what's nice is that you know, if it crashes, you only lose that one request. And even though it is a garbage collected language, because processes are very short lived and, and tend to not actually have garbage collection happen for most processes, if everything is done quickly enough. So I was very curious about what a processless HTTP client would achieve. Mm-hmm. Because he basically opened the talk with all of the limitations of this processless HTTP client. So I was very confused. Like it didn't handle proxying very easily. Yep. But the where it started to make sense was if your architecture already has a lot of concurrency built in, so you have a lot of processes that are then going to be making HTTP calls mm-hmm. or interacting with HTTP, rather than spinning up even more processes, you want to be able to interact with that HTTP request within the process you've already spun up. So the example he gave was... Uh, Say you're using GenStage. So you're using GenStage, you have all these processes going that are doing various bits of work. And if some of them need to make HTTP requests rather than spinning up more processes, yep. this is a good case for using something like Mint. You do get pretty high performance out of doing this. So you, so you again, if you need to, if you already spun up a bunch of processes, you wouldn't want to slow things down by creating a lot more. Things will move faster this yep. way. And then uh, a few features that he brought up was uh, that it supports both HTTP and HTTPS. And then uh, a, b- a big thing that 
you don't always think of uh, is that the HTTPS is safe by default. So he gave the example where in Hackney, if you use HTTPS with no other arguments, it will throw an error if like there's a uh, like a TLS handshake issue. But if you pass certain arguments, it doesn't actually check that the certificate is valid anymore. So you can end up getting back a 200 response when you should be getting back an error. And that doesn't happen in Mint. Mm-hmm. So it's this is a good talk to actually check out the original video because it, it the detail that he'll go into explaining how and why things work will be much better than just seeing a summary. You kind of need to get into the weeds on this one. Yep. The next one was uh, pretty interesting. Andrew Ford, it was called a Live View Rich Client Side Experience Delivered from the Server. And Live View is a pretty new feature to Phoenix, right? Yeah. It's something that I and I think a lot of the Elixir community have been excited about because I think, you know, in Rails land, you have this idea, you had back in Turbo Links days, and even recently, you have this idea of like sprinkles of JavaScript and a lot of applications not needing full fledged single page apps backed by an API. And up till now, like I had not seen a particularly compelling implementation. But with Live View, I think if you you leverage the performance that Elixir and Phoenix give you, you end up in a scenario where you really can have something that looks pretty fast, but doesn't have any uh, front-end framework on it. Yep. And so uh, his talk was interesting. There was a couple of things uh, that came up that I think were notable. So one, you know, you have your, if you're doing a server-rendered application, you have EEX. And here for LiveView, there's essentially an extension to that called LEEX, that supports some of the custom handlers that are needed to make LiveView work. And essentially what LiveView does is when a user makes a request, it looks at what the new HTML is going to look like and then diffs it and then just pushes up the diff uh, via WebSocket. Gotcha. And swaps it out. So it's pretty. It's a pretty slick solution because it doesn't require a whole page re-render, uh, but it also doesn't require the user to write JavaScript. Like There is some JavaScript that ships to support the WebSockets and the page replacement but yep it, you know it's essentially the uh, the custom html handlers that are provided are a nice shorthand that take care of the heavy lifting of the javascript that's happening to do like the websocket uh, replacement what's your take on what kind of application or set of features in an application like this is better suited towards yeah so i think this is again that point about leverage so something like Ember is awesome. Like Ember's statement used to be for you know for ambitious web applications. So some of the stuff that we've built that's very suited to Ember are these very large applications with lots of pages, lots of reused components, tons of interactive behavior. But I think if you're building something that's smaller or simpler, or it's more of a page or series of pages with some dynamic behavior versus a full-fledged application. I think live view can make sense. And I think for me, the first thing I'd look at is the data behavior. So with a single page app, you essentially put the data and all of the rules for how the uh, data should be validated and behave and interact with the application on the client side. With a Phoenix or with a live view application, you're really putting all of the business logic for how the data should behave and how it should influence the page onto the server side and just using JavaScript for a little bit of re-rendering. So I guess what I would think of is how much ephemeral 
state do I have to store? So you can imagine an Ember application, a lot of the data that changes, changes what you see, but doesn't necessarily get persisted to the back end. Yep. Like for very complex forms and things like that. If you start having to manage all of that interstitial or ephemeral state on the back end, maybe you're running into a solution where a single page application makes more sense. Mm-hmm. But if you're just displaying data and or persisting almost everything, or like your your data model in terms of its permanence is relatively straightforward, I think sticking server rendered keeps things simpler. So yep. just off the top of my head, that's how I think about it. But I think as we build a few live view applications, it'll flesh out more. And the next one was by Merrill Dakin, Process Potential Multitasking and Fault Tolerance in Elixir. Yeah, I really enjoyed this talk. You know, it was basically a way to introduce people to what are processes and how do they work in Elixir. So the topics that were covered were, you know, processes, linking, monitoring, and failure. But in the context of a process being a spy, uh, it was done with... Great humor and hilarious illustrations. Right. And then so so she really built it up from this idea of like a process is just something that like receives messages in an inbox and can respond to them. And then you added this idea of linking and monitoring and what happens when the process fails and then how you orchestrate various processes and built up to a demonstration of a course deployer, which is this application that uh, she built at work for a Flatiron school for uh, doing something with their serving their courses to students. And mm-hmm. so a uh, highly recommended talk, especially if some of the, like if you've used processes, but you don't know the difference between start and start link or how to monitor a process or what actually happens when a process dies. So it's, it's a pretty good one to just get into the weeds of the basics of a process in Elixir. Mm-hmm. And John Karstens did a, talk uh, that he titled Dad Engineering with Elixir and Nerves. I thought this was a lot of fun too. Yeah, I thought this was a very, this one was hilarious. This was towards the end of the day. I'm not going to lie, I was a little tired. Yeah. I thought, oh, it's going to be on like on like a Raspberry Pi and some lights blinking or something. And it turned out to be hilarious and it woke me right up. He opened with this line, no problem is too small for a complex solution, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And he... Uh, you know, made his whole family party to his hilarious uh, project. So the first problem he had was uh, giving the well, kids- um, just a little background. So Nerves is basically embedded. It's like hard, embedded software written in Elixir that you can use in hardware. And I think they do a lot of their programming on the Raspberry Pi, just as a bit of context with respect yeah. to the talk. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, exactly. And so uh, his first project was basically giving access to a storage room. So he used a magnetic lock and then a motion sensor and some lights so that you know he could essentially from his phone unlock the storage room for his kids and turn the lights on so they can go yep. get stuff. And then he also built a whose turn is it board, which would light up a photo of whoever's turn it is for whatever chore or activity. So that was it was a, it was a hilarious talk. Definitely recommend watching that one when they come out on video. And the last one was by Billy Seskovich. And he did his talk title was uh, "Is Elixir Just Lisp: Demystifying Metaprogramming in Elixir and Beyond?" Yeah, and uh, this one really—if you've always heard the term metaprogramming but are not sure, uh, like 
what it is or more importantly how it works he really got in under the hood and so he broke it down from like well there's textual substitution or syntactic extension then he you know stepped through the steps that your compiler actually takes from scanning lexing parsing doing all of the subsequent steps and he really broke down both in elixir like what quote unquote def macro do and how they can be used and compared it to some of the different lists to see how they compare and differ. And I think the takeaway was that Elixir is not a Lisp. It has a subset of the capabilities of, of a Lisp, but it does have a lot of metaprogram capabilities. And then he closed off by talking about JavaScript translation as being a form of metaprogramming as well, which I thought was interesting. Because in my mind, it, it, it's just translation. But if you look at it, not as just language, but your language and your build tooling and your whole environment, the case he made was that that's a form of metaprogramming. Yeah, the, uh, what I liked about this talk was it was it was pretty clear. Like he was walking through the he did this kind of compiler walkthrough and how yeah. it works, and I thought that was cool. Like he breaks it up into four steps: scanning, lexing, parsing, and translation. And he just walks through like what that looks like, and he uses Elixir and uh, macros within Elixir to show that. And I thought that was cool. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah, that was the end of the the event. And then everyone went over on the corner to I forget the name of the bar. It's the same place they go every year for drinks. I think it's a Swift Hibernian Lounge. Swift Hibernian, that's right. But yeah, it's a fun conference, and I think they'll definitely have one next year. And I think at the beginning, they said at the beginning of this particular conference, they they said that they're looking to like expand. So I think they're going to do like an MPEX LA. Yeah, so they did an MPEX LA in February this year already. Okay, and I think their plan is to keep that going because I believe one of the founders moved out to LA. Yep. And I think the goal is to potentially expand beyond Elixir to be more broadly about like functional languages, because I know there was a Haskell training and that sort of thing. So yep. we'll see see how, how that grows. Yeah. But yeah, I've been out all four years and it's been good all four years. So definitely recommend it. Cool. Hey, everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.